Now, technically, today is the first Sunday of Advent, but we're breaking all the rules. Advent's not in the Bible, so don't worry about it. We're, not, we're breaking all the rules, uh, and we're actually going to start our Advent series next week uh, on the 3rd, and we'll, and we'll do three Advent Sundays leading up to Christmas. And some of you are like, is that allowed? Uh, it is. And so uh, today's sermon, it actually came out of a conversation that I, I had with Brad, who is our missions team chairperson, and this was a while ago, probably back closer to the summer, and we had this conversation about how do we get people interested in missions, uh, and, and as we talked and discussed, he said, Andrew, would you be willing to spend a Sunday just kind of like talking about that, and I said, yep, and then I completely forgot about it until today, and I was like, well, I said I would do it, so we need to do this, but the, the conversation that me and Brad had, it, it, it went beyond just, okay, well, how do you get people interested in missions? Um, I, I think there's actually an, a misunderstanding when it comes to our idea of missions. And what, what, what exactly is missions? Um, Charles Spurgeon said this famously. He said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. So think about that quote for a second. So, now some of you, uh, maybe you're like, yeah, amen. And some of you are like, what? Uh, one article that I read responding to this quote, um, it was by a pastor, and the title of the article was, I disagree with Spurgeon. That was the whole title of the article. And uh, it was actually, the entire article was about this quote. And the, the gist of what this pastor in his article was saying is, no, not every Christian is a missionary. That would be the same as saying every Christian is a pastor, or every Christian is an evangelist, or every Christian is an apologist. And the whole point of his article is, we're not all missionaries. Spurgeon was wrong. And so I think, actually, uh, that pastor who wrote the article is quite wrong. And I think it boils down to we have a, a wrong view of missions and who missionaries are. I, I think we have probably, maybe the majority of us in this room have this idea that missionaries and missions, well, that's stuff that happens like over there, right? That missionaries aren't here. We send missionaries away, don't we? And, and missions is what happens on the other side of the world. And, and missionaries are people that they go to a foreign country and they dedicate their lives to spreading the gospel, and that's, that's for them. And so today, I, I want to just unpack for us what exactly is the mission of God? And how do normal, everyday people like you and me get involved in the mission of God? I want to take the idea of missions and missionaries where we go, man, they're like superheroes of the faith. And I want to actually bring it down to reality, which is how do normal, everyday people, how are we involved in the mission that God is unfolding as human history goes on? And so what we want to do is look in uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 11. Um, Jesus gives some, some orders to his disciples about how they're going to go about doing this mission. And then what we want to do is just look at a few other examples in the book of Acts and in the New Testament as the disciples then go and carry out the marching orders that Jesus gives them. And so three areas that we want to kind of unpack, three ways that you and I can participate in the mission. We participate by giving, we participate by praying, and we participate by going. So give, pray, and go. Three ways that you and I can actually participate 
in missions. So Acts chapter 1, um, Jesus is about to ascend back to his father, and so he gathers his disciples. In verse 6, it says this. So when they had come together, they, the disciples, asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee... Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So you'll, you might notice that this passage is, is very similar to Matthew 28. If you remember at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus commissions his disciples. And there's some similar language there, but Jesus gathers his disciples and he says, uh, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. And so it's a similar kind of commissioning that Jesus gives his disciples. But here in Acts, Jesus tells his disciples, okay, I want you to go and be witnesses and then he gives them kind of specific areas that he wants them to go and do that, which we're going to get to in just a couple minutes. But a, a, a couple of things. First off, I love that the disciples, their first question for Jesus is, okay, Jesus, now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because if you remember, when we studied Matthew and we studied John, the disciples and really all the Jewish people, their view of the Messiah was quite different from what Jesus came to do. Uh, their view of the Messiah was our Savior comes, he just wipes out all of our enemies, which was Rome at the time, and then he just kind of establishes Israel as a nation again, and we win. That was kind of their view. That's boiled down, but that's uh, the gist of their view. And so you kind of get that in this, right? The, the disciples, they've, they've seen Jesus die. They've seen him raised from the dead. Uh, and now they're, they still have a little bit of that old mindset. Well, Jesus, now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So beyond just, you know, a, a little bit of wrong theology here, I think they just want to know all the plans. Like, Jesus, give us the behind-the-scene details. Give us the inside scoop. Now is it going to happen? Like, what's the, what's the order of things, Jesus? And I love Jesus' answer. Isn't this great? He says, it's not for you to know. <laughs> Times or seasons that God has fixed by his own authority. So meaning, Jesus says, you guys don't get to know all the answers, right? Which drives some people crazy. What's the plan, God? Give me the 10-step plan. And Jesus is like, you don't get to know that. Now why? I mean, it, uh, Jesus says, because God has appointed times and seasons. God's fixed them. And the word uh, fixed, right, in verse 7, that the Father has fixed times and seasons that God has fixed, that word means he's established them. He's destined them to happen. 
And why, why can God do that? Why can God destine and fix certain things to happen? Jesus says, because he has the authority to do that. Right? He's God. He's allowed to fix the times and seasons of things that happen. So I love that Jesus tells his disciples, listen, you don't have to worry about all the details. That's actually not for you to know. But yeah, but Jesus, when are you going to? It's not for you to know. So now, a bit of an application for us. You and I, we often, human beings, we just want to know all the details of every single thing that God is doing. God, tell us the plan. What are you doing? What is the long-range goal? When is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? And we probably are, are just like the disciples. Okay, now, God, now is Jesus going to come back? Now is the end of grace? And, and, right, and we just kind of freak out about all of the little details. God, wh- where is human history going? When's the tribulation? Who's the antichrist? When does the seven years begin? When are this and that and that? And we just freak out. And then much ink and paper has been written for people going, I know. Let me tell you how human history is going to unfold. And what would Jesus say? It's actually not for you to know. Um, we, we do this all the time. Um, even recently... Um, I guess this was a few years ago when Trump moved the, the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem and Christians' minds exploded because they were like, oh, it's happening! I had someone call me and tell me, Andrew, do you realize what this means? That's the first seal in the book of Revelation. I went, really? I'm pretty sure Trump's not in there. Right? But we just like, okay, and then that happens, and then this is happening, and oh, the world's going to end in like eight years tops, right? And we try and figure out all the plans and all the details, and Jesus would say, um, that's not for you to know. God has fixed times and seasons by his own authority. And then Jesus moves on and he tells us, here's what you can know. Here's what you can do, right? Don't sit down and stress about how all of human history is going to unfold, Here is what is for you. Verse 8, you are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So that's pointing ahead to Pentecost, right? When the Holy Spirit is given to the church, the living God is going to dwell inside you. You'll be empowered to go and be witnesses. Do Do you need to figure out all the details of God's plan? No. You need to go and be witnesses. And we, we might ask, well, witnesses to what? Well, to the truth of who Jesus is. Witnesses to his life, death, and resurrection. Witnesses to the gospel. Jesus is saying, okay, I want you to go out and I want you to witness to these facts. It's the same basic idea as go and make disciples. Teach, teach people everything that I've taught you, Jesus says. Go and be witnesses. That's what you can focus on. Not only that, but then Jesus gives them a game plan. He gives them a strategy, which is quite amazing, right? He says, okay, don't, don't focus on this stuff. Focus on being witnesses. And then he tells them, here's how I want you to do it. You're going to be my witnesses, verse 8, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, when you read that, you might just see um, Jesus just naming a bunch of places but there's actually quite a bit of strategy to it. And what happens is, it, is that it, it's like concentric circles further and further and further out from the epicenter. 
And, and here's a little fascinating tidbit. When you read the book of Acts, you see that exact pattern unfold. The church is in Jerusalem for chapters 1 to 7. The church then expands to Judea and Samaria through chapters 8 through 12. And then the church then goes to the ends of the world in chapters 13 through 28. They, they did exactly what Jesus told them to do. So Jesus, he's giving geographical uh, areas, and they kind of go broader and broader and, and broader, but, but I think there's also some deeper meaning here. And so if you're going to put those places into our language, right, so none of us is over there. We can't go, well, I can't go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, literally. I'm not over in that part of the world. So what is Jesus getting at? What's the principle here that he's unpacking? Um, Jerusalem was their home base. Jerusalem in that day and age was the center of the religious life, um, and this is, this is where they were kind of living and near Jerusalem, living and working. And, and, and so if you wanted to translate that into our day and age, this would be your neighborhood probably, your home, your neighborhood, the, places, the place that's closest to you. This is where you spend most of your time. Jesus says, start there. Um, Judea then could be kind of like the next bubble. That would be our city, Maybe include Taylor, Charlie Lake. That would be the region of Judea if you want to use that kind of language. It's, it's just a little bit farther out than just your neighborhood. Samaria, that would be like Dawson, right? The Samaritans, the untouchables, right? <laughs> I told Pastor David I was going to say that. He's like, yes, please do. Make fun of us. Um, but uh, Samaria was just kind of uh, put aside the, the cultural stuff that was going on. But it was just a little bit farther out. And so if you want to think of Samaria um, as, you know, the peace region, maybe, or even B.C., it just kind of keeps going further and further and further. And then obviously to the ends of the earth, um, it's quite obvious. It's everywhere else. So I love that Jesus gives them the game plan, right? He doesn't just say, yeah, go make witnesses. He tells them how to go about doing it. He says, start closest to home, begin in Jerusalem, start where you live. And then, as the Spirit guides you, then focus on your city and your region and your country and then to the ends of the world. And, and here's what's interesting. The early church was just like us. Oftentimes, we look back at the early church and we're like, oh, man, it was like this golden age. They were perfect. Do you know the only reason why the early church then went to Judea and Samaria? God forced them to. <laughs> they were all in Jerusalem. And it says this in Acts 8, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. Where did they go? Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then it says in verse 4, and those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So Jesus tells his disciples, I want you to be witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, eight chapters in the book of, in the book of Acts, they're just staying in Jerusalem. So God sends persecution, and what happens? They're scattered to where? Judea and Samaria, and they go and they preach the gospel as they're scattered. And you see the gospel spread. And then in our tax, uh, a text in Acts chapter 1, then Jesus ascends to heaven. And the angels promise he's going to come back the same way that he went. So here's the summary of Acts 1. Um, Jesus tells his disciples, don't don't worry about all the plans and all the mysteries of God about when things are going to happen. That's actually not for you to know. God's fixed that 
by his own authority. You don't need to worry about it. You stressing about how the world's going to end won't change God's plan. Then he says, but here's what you can do. Go and be witnesses. You're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that empowered the disciples lives in you if you're a follower of Jesus. You will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then go and be witnesses. But, and, and, and it's like you can almost hear, but where do we start, Jesus? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And Jesus is coming back, and you need to do this until he does. So here you and I sit 2,000 years later, and the mission hasn't changed. Jesus hasn't returned yet, and you and I were still called to go and be witnesses, to make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them to obey. And so then the question is, well, how, how do you and I participate in the mission? Because it can seem overwhelming, right? We go, okay, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Like I said, I'm not even over in that part of the world. And then, and then we often focus on the ends of the earth and we go, well, I can't, I have a family, I have a job. I can't go and leave and go to India or Africa, the ends of the, the world. And so then it feels very overwhelming. And then oftentimes when we're just overwhelmed by what we should do, we end up not doing anything, Right? And so what do you and I do? If we've been saved by God, you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live on mission, the same mission that Jesus gave his first disciples. And so I think if we wanted to give just like really basic ways, there's three ways that you and I can support, engage, and participate in the mission to be witnesses. And like I said at the beginning, those are give, pray, and go. Um, So let's start with the first one, giving. One of the ways that we participate in this mission that Jesus gave his church is through giving. And when you read the New Testament, you see followers of Jesus engaged by by giving to support the mission. Um, Even during Jesus' earthly mission, uh, that happened. Like in Luke 8, it says this, Soon afterward, he, this is Jesus, went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And And the 12 were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, I'm guessing, (laughs) Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others, and here's the kicker, who provided for them out of their means. So as Jesus is traveling and he's teaching and he's doing miracles, I mean, how do you buy food? Where do you stay? And and Luke tells us that there were women who traveled with them, wealthy women from the household of Herod, and they gave to the mission of Jesus out of their own means. They supported him financially. Then you get to other places in, in the New Testament about the early church, and Paul says the same thing, 1 Corinthians 16. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints. So even in the early church, they did some kind of collection for the churches. He says, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So the church in Corinth was putting aside money and then trusted people would come and take that and use it for the, the mission of planting churches and taking care of, of needs. Um, even in Philippians 4, uh, Paul says a similar thing. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more 
I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And I mean, on and on, there's so many examples of the church um, giving to to the, to the mission, even in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, people were selling property and bringing money to the church and saying, hey, distribute this to, to whoever needs it. We want to take care of each other. We want the mission to keep going. So here's the truth. The, the mission of God, it costs money to do. It costs resources to, to go and be witnesses. And we see throughout the book of Acts and all the New Testament, believers gave to help fund the mission. And so one of the ways that you can participate in the mission of God is through your giving. Now, here's where it gets awkward. Um, pastors rarely talk about money because people don't like it when you talk about money. And it just feels awkward, right? Some of you feel awkward right now, even though you're like, oh man, he's going to talk about money. And here's the reason, I, I think, uh, a couple of reasons. One is that um, money is a massive idol for us in North America, huge. Uh, and we'll say, let's talk about discipleship in all of these other areas, but don't tell me what to do with my money. That's none of your business, right? We do this. We go, it doesn't matter how I spend my money. Yes, talk about discipleship with my family and my, my job and my hobbies and how I serve in the church, but just don't touch the money part of it. That's, that's not for you to touch, so that's one reason is, is, is this, it's a huge idol for us. The other reason is um, sometimes pastors just lay the guilt trip and then it's time to pass the offering bag now, right? <laughs> We've seen that <laughs> where it's just, uh, and, and, and it almost feels like ma manipulative. And I get it. Listen, it's awkward talking about it because it can be seen as, well, just give more so that I get a paycheck. Um, and it just feels awkward, right? But here's the deal. Um, we need to touch on it. We have to talk about money and giving because so many of us, myself included, were like, yeah, Jesus can't touch that part of my life. I work hard for my money. I get to spend it however I want. Every other, talk about sex, talk about relationships, talk about anything else. Just don't talk about my money. But the New Testament has an awful lot to say about money. And I think actually sometimes as Christians, we're, we're confused about what, what does the Bible actually say about giving? For many of you, I mean, I grew up uh, hearing and believing that you have to tithe 10% of your paycheck to the church because the Bible says so. And actually, that's not true. But I remember having arguments, now is that 10% gross or 10% net? And if you don't do the right one, then you're sinning. And it's just kind of like, I think we've missed the point. Nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere in all of the letters to the churches, nowhere in the Gospels are we told that you must tithe 10% to the church. Um, Israel was commanded to tithe 10%, but it was also part of their taxation system. And then when you factored in other offerings that they gave and taxes at the festivals, it was actually closer to 25, 23 to 25% that the Israelites gave. So if you want to follow Old Testament principles, 10% ain't enough, right? But we, we say, well, the Israelites gave 10%, so we should just give 10%. Actually, do you know that the New Testament, it speaks nothing on this. 
what the New Testament does and what Jesus does and what often the, like this is what the New Testament does. It takes the Old Testament law where people said, okay, fine, I'll just give 10%. And what it does is it flips it on its head and it makes it about your heart more than about the bare minimum that you can do. Right, think about what Jesus did throughout the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, right? But I say, so Jesus said, don't murder anyone. And everyone could go, okay, sweet, I've never murdered anyone. He says, actually, if you're angry at your brother, it's, it's, as, it's as if you've murdered him. And he goes, man, I'm a murderer. <laughs> and he says, you've heard that it, that it was said, don't commit adultery. And many of us could go, well, never done that. Check. But actually, if you look lustfully at a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. So what the New Testament often does with the law is it takes the law and it kind of turns it on its head and then it makes it about your heart and your motivations for why you do things. The New Testament, it talks a lot about money, but over and over and over again, it talks about followers of Jesus being generous, willing givers. I'll give you one example. 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart. Do you see that? Not each one must give 10%. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So what is Paul saying here? This is what the passage isn't saying. The passage isn't saying, hey, you should give money so that God has to give you more money. That is prosperity gospel nonsense. Where it says, okay, yeah, 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 give $100 and now God is obligated to give you $1,000. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is, is that there is a blessing that comes when you are someone who just cheerfully gives your money away. God, what, what Paul is saying is God loves generous people and of course he's going to take care of you. That's what it means at the end when he says God's going to make all grace abound to you so that you'll have all sufficiency in all things at all times so that you abound in good works. Um, I heard one pastor say that uh, if you wanted to kind of summarize it is that you and I, we give to get, and bear with me because you're like, wait, you just said that, but why, why does God then take care of us so that we can give? And then God takes care of us, and then we give, and then God takes care of us, right? So that, what does Paul end this passage with? So that you can abound in every good work. God loves to bless people, and he loves to take care of you. But I think a lot of us, we don't generally give, and we're not generous, because I think if you boil it down, we actually don't trust God to take care of our needs. If I give my money away, how am I going to pay my bills? Or we hoard our money and we make our lives as comfortable as possible instead of giving to the mission. I, I, my dad has lots of stories growing up where um, God like supernaturally took care of their needs. Um, so I, I could give tons of examples of stuff that happened and then, you know, money showed up and, and blah, blah, blah. But just one, I remember that um, it was near the end of the month 
and my dad had an opportunity to be generous and give and help someone, but it was kind of like, okay, if we do that, man, oh man, the budget's going to be like super tight. If, if not, we just won't have any money at the end of the month. But my dad just felt this kind of, no, I'm, I'm meant to help this person. I am meant to be generous and give. And so don't hear, like, he doesn't have a halo. He wrestled. He was like, I'm not going to do this. No, I should do this. And then the Spirit of God convicted him. Okay, I'm going to get, this person needs this. I'm going to be generous. I'm going to give my money away. And I'm just going to trust that, God, you're going to take care of us. And he told me, like, within a few days, I don't remember exactly if it was the next day or in a few days, but within a week, in our mailbox was an anonymous envelope with that exact amount of money he had given away. So don't tell me that God doesn't take care of us. And I know, like, I've had experiences like that where you go, okay, I'm feeling like God wants me to be a cheerful giver, and I don't know how things are going to work out, so I'm going to give, and then God, of course, takes care of us. So I think one of the reasons money is an idol is because we just don't trust God. We go, I can't trust him with my finances. I have to kind of Keep all of my stuff. So one of the ways that you participate in the mission of God, it's not the only way, but one of the ways is through giving. God loves cheerful givers. So maybe it's giving here at our church as we proclaim the gospel and disciple people and equip them. Maybe it's giving somewhere else. Maybe it's supporting missionaries overseas financially, whatever it is. I mean, that's why even as a church, we took $100,000 and we gave it towards Creekside's launch in Dawson. I mean, that's a lot of money. But we said, no, the mission of God needs to go forward in Dawson. And so we're going to commit financially and we're going to commit ongoing financially to Dawson. Why? So that men and women hear the gospel, surrender to Jesus, are baptized, and are discipled. So if I can just lovingly and pastorally push you a little bit, um, if you aren't giving in some way, and I'm not going to tell you how much and where and how, because the New Testament doesn't do that. The New Testament just says, hey, be generous. But if you're not giving in some kind of way, I believe you're, you're disobeying all the commands in the New Testament about living a life of generosity with what God has blessed you with. And there's so many warnings in the New Testament to the rich, which by and large is all of us, to the rich, those who, who hoard their wealth. There's so many passages, 1 Timothy 6, James 5, that just plead with those who are rich to to be very, very cautious with your money. So that's one way that you can participate. Okay, how can I, how can I maybe, maybe I can't go to the ends of the earth, but I can give towards that end. Secondly, the second way you can participate in the mission of God is through prayer. Um, again, you see throughout Acts and throughout the New Testament, believers giving to the mission, but then you also see them praying for the mission. And we don't have... Uh, uh, time to look all, at, at all the New Testament examples of believers gathering and praying, and, and there's so many, but um, we're going to skip the Acts 1, but we're going to go to Colossians 1, and it says this, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Paul says that we, so him and his companions, we haven't stopped praying for this church that they would grow in the knowledge. 2 Thessalonians 3, finally brothers, Paul says, pray for us 
For what, Paul? That the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica and says, finally, could you just pray for us? Pray that the, the gospel speeds ahead. Isn't that great? That it just, that it takes off. Pray that we just have open doors. I think sometimes we underestimate the power of prayer in the mission of Jesus, and we go, yeah, 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 okay, we should pray, but what can we do? Right? Don't we say that? Yeah, 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 praying is good, but what, give me something to do. And what that statement reveals is that we don't believe that prayer is actually doing anything, <laughs> Like, I've had people in my office who have said, not, not related to the mission, but just things going on in their life and marriage problems, and I say, well, the first thing we should do is pray. Okay, great, but then can you give me some things that I can do? Right, well, prayer is one of the things that you can do. I mean, you read the book of Acts, and the church is constantly in prayer. Apostles are asking, please pray. If, actually, if you read... Uh, early on in Acts, the apostles, the apostles find other people who can serve so that they, they can devote themselves to teaching and prayer. There's prayer meetings described in the book of Acts, the church gathering and praying for one another and for, for the mission. Prayer is so crucial because it reminds us that you and I, we can't accomplish the mission of Jesus without him. I mean, he told his disciples, you, without me, you can do nothing and so to sit around and strategize and plan and give and go, which are all great things, but without relying on the Spirit of, of God through prayer, it'll, it'll just be fruitless. So do you pray? Do you pray for our church? Do you pray for the lost in our city? I know so many of you do because I talk with you. I mean, do you pray for Creekside? Do you pray for our missionaries? Did you, did you know that we have a, a, a missions board with prayer updates from all of our missionaries? Really practical ways that you can pray for them. Um, sometimes I, I chat with um, older brothers and sisters in the faith. And oftentimes as you age, you might feel like, well, what could I possibly do for the kingdom now? I don't have the energy and I don't have the physical health that I used to have. Um, this is a massive way that you can be involved in the mission of God. We need brothers and sisters, older saints in the church who may be sure you can't go anymore, but you can daily pray for the mission. Um, my, my mom is one of these types of people. Many of you know my mom has significant health problems. My dad is actually in uh, Medellin, Colombia right now on a missions trip, and there's no way my mom would ever be able to go with him. Because her health, she just can't go. But I know for a fact that my mom wakes up every day and spends hours in prayer. And, and we would go, well, that's great, but what about the people that go? No, nothing happens without the praying for it. Right? And so maybe that's where you're at, where you go, man, I don't know what I can do for the kingdom anymore. You can pray. You can pray daily for the church and the gospel to go forward. So do you pray? And lastly, one of the ways we participate so we give, we pray, and then we go. And again, we see this all throughout the book of Acts. Paul goes on several missionary trips to plant churches. He goes to different cities. He preaches the gospel. He gathers a believer. He establishes churches. Even in Acts 13, um, speaking of a church that was gathered, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manny and a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, as Paul, 
while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set, aside, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So there's an example of God saying, this, think about the church in Antioch, like a rock star church. Look at all those people. And then the Holy Spirit says, actually, I want you to take Barnabas and Saul and send them off. And the church does that. Those two men then go to further the mission. Now, all of us, in a sense, are called to go and bear witness. And again, I think it's because of a language thing that we misunderstand the Great Commission, where we go, okay, well, those who are called to go and make disciples, they're the ones that go to the other parts of the world. Because of the way the Greek is worded, it's actually better translated, as you are going, make disciples. So that's, that's all of us. Like, as you are going... In your daily life, as you wake up and you go to the basement, if you have a basement, to homeschool your kids, as you are going, disciple them. As you get up and you're going to work, make disciples. Be a a, a witness. As you go to the store to buy groceries, you are going to be a, a witness. All of us are called to that. As you go to school, as you go to the hockey arena, as you go to family functions, as you lead a life group, or as you go to Kids Zone and help teach, as you preach, as you, like on and on and on. As you're going, make disciples. So it's not just this thing that some elite group of Christians, well, they go and make disciples. Like some of you might be called Right? We, we see Riley and Emily and Paul and the Hoskins, they felt the call. I'm going to actually physically go to Mexico and be a witness there. But, but some of you are called to go in just the everyday stuff of life. Go and make disciples. So we give and we pray and we go. I love that Jesus has given us a game plan. He says, go and be witnesses. And I believe that he's saying, well, start close to home. So, so in reality, parents, as you're going throughout your day, are you discipling your kids? As you make them breakfast, as you drive them to school, as you pick them up, just as you're going, do you make disciples? Start closest to home, maybe in your neighborhood with your neighbors. Pick a neighbor and say, okay, I'm going to attempt to be a witness for Jesus to my neighbor. And then in the city, and then in the region, right, as the concentric circles go out, as a church, I think we're in this city of Fort St. John to be witnesses. So how do you get involved in what the churches are doing in our city? Don't worry about all the details and how God is orchestrating human history. Just go and bear witness until he comes back. And so you and I, we're participating in this same mission and we can participate by giving, so supporting the mission financially. We can participate by, by praying, praying for the lost, praying for our church, praying for our town, praying for other believers and pastors and maybe missionaries who are on the other side of the world. And then we participate by going, by actually going and, and bearing witness to Jesus. So there really is nothing greater that you can give your life to and there are so many ways that you can be involved, but I think it's just, it's shifting our mindset around missions and missionaries that we go, like, like Spurgeon said, well, I'm either a missionary or I'm just kind of faking it. So are you a missionary? Yes. 
And as you go, you can go and bear witness to the gospel. So, Father, I just thank you for your word. And, Jesus, I thank you that you gave your disciples and us such a a clear mission and a clear path to do. We don't have to sit around and wonder, okay, what what does Jesus want us to do? I mean, you very clearly told us, go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them and teach them. Go be witnesses to the gospel in all places, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so God, help us. I I pray that we would change our mindset a little bit about what it means to be a missionary and what it means to be on mission, Um, that we would get out of this idea, well, you know, that's for kind of super elite Christians who are really serious about it, and that's not really for me, and what can I do, God? I pray that in whatever small way that that we can all participate in the mission until the day you return, Jesus. Maybe for some of us, that's a, a conviction to give towards the mission, Praise God. Maybe for some of us, it's, it's a commitment to, I'm going to pray for the mission. I'm going to pray for our missionaries. I'm going to pray for my neighborhood. I'm going to pray for the loss and for Dawson and, and Creekside. I'm going to pray. And praise God if that's how we can participate in the mission. And maybe for some of us, it's just this mindset of, no, as I'm going, I can be a witness to the gospel. As I go to work and as I go to school and as I'm in my city and my neighborhood, as I go, I can bear witness to the truth of who Jesus is. So God, we ask that your spirit would just move in a mighty way in our neighborhoods, um, in our, our, our city, in our region, in our province, in our country. Um, God, that as we go and as we're committed to giving and praying and going, that your spirit would do the work of drawing men and women to yourself that we would just be faithful to go and bear witness and that, God, you would do the work of drawing people. And so thank you that you are so faithful to do that, and I just pray all of this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.